I want to thank Research FDI for sponsoring today's podcast. They're a globally renowned lead generation firm that helps economic development organizations create real prospects. They've helped over 500 economic development organizations. Let me tell you exactly what they do. They facilitate one-on-one meetings for economic developers with corporate executives who will have projects soon. They can facilitate these meetings to where you travel to the corporate executive's office and meet them there, or you meet them at a trade show, or even have a conference call with them so you don't have to pay for travel. They recently launched a service called FDI 365, which provides you a lead a day of fast-growing companies that will be expanding soon. Their research has helped over $5 billion worth of projects get cited since inception. I encourage you to go to www.researchfdi.com to learn more about Research FDI. As far as I'm concerned, they are absolutely the best lead generation firm in the business for economic developers. Call them at 514-488-3168 and see how Research FDI can help you create real prospects. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Next Move Group We Are Jobs podcast. This is your host, CEO Chuck Sexton, and I am joined today uh, by a good friend of mine, uh, someone I've known in my career, uh, who is now in Ohio at Ready Cincinnati as VP of Global Business Development, Mr. Wade Williams. Wade, thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Very happy to be here. Thank you, Chuck. I look forward to our conversation. Yeah, I do too. Um, you know, one of the things I've talked about uh, quite a quite a lot recently is uh, it seems like it's the aerospace sector, aerospace industry, and uh, I want to get into that today a little bit uh, with you uh, because uh, you know, as vice president of global business development, you know that's something that you hit on a lot uh, in your role at Ready Cincinnati. But first, uh, why don't you give the audience a little bit of your background and uh, what all it is you do for Ready Cincinnati? Yeah, happy to. So. Uh... Uh, my role at Ready Cincinnati is to lead the, the global business development strategy for our, it's, we're actually a three-state, 16-county regional economic development organization uh, focused on trying to drive new job creation. We focus on that in, in really a couple of ways. So I lead a team that focuses on the international attraction effort, as well as the domestic attraction piece. And of course, within any economic development organization, the existing industry is such an important piece of that. So I oversee that program of work for our region as well. And finally, um, our the research component of our response to RFIs and uh, the work we do in, in response to opportunities is also under my purview. So I lead a team that is focused primarily on driving new investments into the region, either through attraction efforts or through expansions. Um, I think we're a little unique in that that because we are a three-state, um, sixteen-county uh, regional economic development group. You know, we are, we obviously are working with three different state, um, you know, uh, incentive programs, and we were working with three different state approving agencies. So it's a it's a bit complex. And you know, Chuck, as we've if we've crossed paths in in, in our careers. Uh, we work together in Kentucky, so a lot of folks think I'm primarily focused on Ohio, and I am focused on Ohio, but I'm also focused on the portions of Kentucky and Indiana that are in our territory. So uh, it's a it's a, proves to be a a, a really interesting and and uh, uh, strategic approach to how we we do that. You know, we're we're a region of over two million people. Um, we have a we're a very business oriented community with um, over 152 billion dollars in gross regional product. We have over 450 foreign invested firms in our region. So we are a, we are a region that understands business and we, we work hard to try to continue to drive that success. 
You know, it's really interesting to me working uh, in three states, and I'm sure there's a lot of challenges to that, but uh, I'm sure there's also a lot of really cool opportunities uh, that you get to see. And, you know, one thing that I've always been curious about is how it works, because you mentioned you have to deal with, you know, three different state incentive programs. And, you know, when it comes to local incentives, you know, how does that work? You know, do you all sort of function as an ED or a regional EDO? Uh, as a marketing, from a marketing standpoint, obviously, uh, and doing the traditional things that you would consider, but how does it differ when you go to get, go to put together, say, a local incentive package? Yeah, so I think, um, I, I think one of the things we say often is that we, that we, um, we market regionally and we compete locally, right? So we, as you know, a lot of economic development deals are primarily driven by, um, you know, real estate. And so a lot of the real estate opportunities are a lot of the, a lot of the projects we end up finding um, that we, we help them try to build the best business case for that. Sometimes that's in Ohio, sometimes that's in Kentucky, sometimes that's in Indiana. Uh, and once we locate the best real estate option, we then, you know, we then kick it to the, the local upper, the local economic developers who are the experts at the local deal. And then we bring in the state economic development offices for the incentives of those particular jurisdictions. It works really well, um, and we work really well together. Um, Ready as a member, it, we're, a, we're primarily uh, uh, funded by our investors, and our investors include not only the states, but also the local and regional municipalities and governmental units that, that are a part of that. So that's where we drive most of our revenue, and that's where we, we think that there's a lot of folks who invest in us for that reason alone. Now, do you all have any private funding that comes in? Uh, we do have private funding. Um, a lot of that private funding comes from some of our, our largest companies, uh, but we also get it from our largest municipalities as, as well. Um, the three-state regional economic development organization across the river in Northern Kentucky, for example, also is an investor because they, they see the benefit of our marketing and our reach internationally. And so they, they invest in us as well. Yeah. And I assume you probably have some local economic development folks that you work with and, and obviously local IDAs you would. Uh, but, uh, you know, is do you have a, a strong presence of local economic developers uh, or is it sort of uh, more scattered? Yeah, we, we, we definitely have a strong local economic development community here. You know, I think, you know, be, we're blessed in this region with a lot of um, local economic developers at the either whether it's the county or city or township levels. That we work hand in hand with, we we partner most aggressively, and, and I think where we 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 shine the most is in the business retention and expansion effort. We do those in collaboration. We do a lot of the research um, at the Ready Cincinnati level to try to determine the the organizations we think are growing, and then we partner with them and go on joint visits together, where we then you know can help that company either in growth or if they have some challenges, we can bring all the resources to bear. So I think that's where we, we shine the best is on the BRE front with the local economic development community. And we, hope, we host multiple events per year where we bring in the entire community together to talk about what we're seeing in the market and what we're seeing from trends and economic development. So we all sort of, you know, we kind of, we try to get ourselves all uh, aligned in, in, in seeing the same business intelligence signals. You know, as we're going around the country and working with communities, uh, whether it's doing strategic planning or labor market analysis or site feasibility studies, whatever the case may be, you know, we're hearing, you know, different challenges and some similar ones. What would you say are the biggest challenges that you're seeing 
whether it's among your existing industry, what challenges they're facing, or what challenges you see as a whole from an economic development standpoint? Yeah, so I, I mean, I think, you know, one of the things you're taking that question and turn it a little bit about what we think makes Cincinnati so unique um, is that we are, we are blessed in this region because of the diversity of our economy and the strong clusters we have across industry. To just give you a flavor for that, and then I'll jump into what we're seeing in terms of some of the challenges. Um, you know, we are we have a very strong aerospace cluster, for example, um, an automotive cluster. We have uh, a, we have a big we're a big manufacturing town with over seventy thousand jobs, but we're all we're also a logistics and distribution town. We have a lot of food and flavoring. Um, flipping it a little bit, we're also a headquarters location. You know, you have Procter and Gamble and Fifth Third and Kroger. So the business and professional services side is also big. We also have a lot of banking here in the financial services industry. And we have a growing IT technology and biohealth strategy as well. So we've been somewhat isolated. We're often said that we, we, don't, see as, we don't see the lows, nor do we see the, the spikes as, as aggressively as other parts of the, of, of the country. So we feel that we're really, um, because of the diversity of who we are, we, we don't necessarily see the huge spikes and valleys. However, we are seeing a lot of the similarities around the country that a lot of other folks are seeing. We're seeing massive supply chain disruptions continue to be a challenge for a lot of our industries, especially in automotive and somewhat in aerospace. Um, we're also seeing, um, you know, labor shortages. We, you know, with I think with uh, the, the pandemic and how it it truly, you know, just um, changed the entire workforce demographic. We're still trying to figure out what that means. So we have we have workforce shortages, um, and we're working to try to train up. But we're also we also know that we just lost a lot of folks who left the workforce completely, and so we're trying to figure out how do we how do we make up that difference? Is that through new technologies, through automation, through training, through retraining those types of things? And so we continue to see those challenges, and then beyond that, I'd say. Um, we're also seeing just uh, very, very large projects due to the supply chain disruption. You're probably seeing this around the country as well. We're seeing large uh, battery or electric vehicle opportunities. We're also seeing a lot in the semiconductor industry. And yep. the challenge we have there is we don't have necessarily ready to go very large sites that have utilities and that are, you know, deemed, you know, project ready or you know we have challenges to get those ready in the time frames of which companies are looking to try to operate so those are the big three as i see it is um, supply chain disruption workforce um, challenges and then sites yeah yeah and it, it's interesting because you know a lot of the work that we're doing right now as, as a company as a firm nationally is um, around site development site feasibility studies you know company yep. uh, communities are uh, out of property or they know they're about to be out of property they only have a little bit left so they know they've got to be planning and this is especially true for communities who are near some of these larger announcements whether it's battery plants semiconductors chips uh, or you know the, the larger EV projects that are going on and so you know we're getting hit up for site feasibility studies quite often that and, and labor force uh, studies because part of the labor yep. force studies that we're doing right now, is uh, surveys to understand uh, the folks who have left the workforce during COVID, you know, what's preventing them from getting back into the workforce. And it's been interesting for me to see um, the similarities of the issues that are preventing people from getting back in the workforce uh, in communities across, you know, our, you know, across the country and those that we're working with right now. The other one right now that we're seeing a lot is strategic planning, but that goes hand in hand with trying to capture opportunities that are 
that are in front of people. You know, folks had a plan in 2020. Seems like everybody had a new strategic plan in 2020 for whatever reason. And here we are two years later and, and half that plan doesn't really work anymore. And they know they need to do some new planning for to try to capture what's going on. So um, as far as the aerospace sector goes, <clears throat> um, do you feel it's going to bounce back? I know it was hit kind of hard, obviously, during COVID. Um, did you get a sense that that's going to going to return? Yeah, it did. In fact, one of the key takeaways I had from Farnborough was um, there was a great sense of optimism at the show, um, which you'd find, which is interesting in light of sort of the headwinds we're all feeling, right? We're feeling some of the headwinds around inflation, around geopolitical unrest, supply chain disruption. We're still seeing a lot of these things. But when you were at the show, there was a lot of optimism. There's a lot of, there were some announcements. Um, especially from Boeing, some of the other ones are at large, new large um, orders, which we have, you know, as you, I think, are aware, you know, one of the big OEMs here, GE Aviation, in our region is a big player in this space, and we have a lot of, of, of component manufacturing here, and so we we saw a lot of optimism uh, flowing around the show, which is interesting. If you look at the last few years, it was, it was disrupted a lot through the, the pandemic, yeah, uh, I want to get into that, actually. Uh, let's talk about Farnborough. I'm going to take a quick break. Uh, and then when we come back, let's hit on the aerospace industry and Farnborough a little more. I want to thank LocationOne.com. Some of you know it as Lois for sponsoring today's podcast. In my opinion, Lois is the best buildings and sites database on the market. One of the reasons I think that is it gives you nationwide exposure. So I used to be the economic developer in Paducah, Kentucky, and I made a terrible mistake. I only put my buildings and sites on the Kentucky Economic Development Buildings and Sites database. Well, Paducah bordered Illinois and was within 30 or so miles of Missouri, Indiana, and Tennessee. So what sense did it make for me to not put my buildings and sites on a nationwide database? Well, Lois does that for you. Looking back, I should have put my bills and sites on Lois. It's also easy to use for an economic developer. It's just like using Facebook. It walks you through how to insert your pictures and your information and so forth. And the thing I like most, it works well on my iPad. If I'm in an industrial building, I want to be able to look at that thing on my iPad. Lois does that for me. Other builders and sites databases struggle with that. So if you got 10 or 15 minutes to spare, go over to location1.com, book yourself a demo and see if this can help your community have more success. And we're back on the next move group. We are jobs podcast with Wade Williams. And uh, we've just started talking about Farnborough and the aerospace industry. And you mentioned right before the break, uh, some big orders for Boeing, especially I saw those. I know Delta uh, placed about a $13.5 billion order uh, for a uh, hundred new, uh, the triple seven max. I think it was, uh, I saw Airbus had some orders uh, on their A350s and, um, Embraer had uh, a good amount of orders as well. And that's one big thing about the air show that obviously the reason a lot of the C-level executives are there, which makes it a good place to go and market and, and have these meetings, whether, and here's what's cool for you is what I see for you is you do it from a BRE standpoint and from a marketing standpoint, because you have such a cluster there. Am I right in that? That's correct. I mean, we have, you know, one of the major things that we focus on is, is our aerospace ecosystem and how robust it is in this region. And there's a lot of reasons for that, right? You know, we, from a strategic initiative perspective, you know, we want to make sure that we're taking care of the companies that are already here. I mentioned GE Aviation previously. 
but they're a large player here, right? So we, we want to attract more suppliers and more component manufacturers to this uh, in, to our ecosystem here. But we have a lot of other players that are also here that play in this space. You know, we've got L3 Harris, we've got a number of other big, we're, you know, I don't know if you know this, but Ohio is the actual number one supplier to Airbus and Boeing. Um, we're the number three largest manufacturing state in the U.S. Um, and so we do a lot. But from a strategic perspective, we focus a lot on attraction. We also focus on this um, growing and protecting the part manufacturers. We're looking at these new disruptive technologies and how we're attraction, attracting so additive materials, lightweight materials, yes. automation is a big piece of this. Um, we also have a lot of assets that are in the region that I think sometimes folks don't realize. You know, a big piece of that is Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Um, there's a very large chunk of the federal budget that flows through Wright-Patterson. And so that's a, that's another reason why we are at the air show. And then we're also doing a lot more in the space side of aerospace. And so with, with some of the assets that also exist in the region or within the broader region, so, such as NASA Glenn's propulsion expertise and um, some of the other assets in Ohio, we, we find that those are some really attractive reasons why we have productive meetings while we're there. You know, it's interesting, you know, we're talking about Wright Pat and a couple other things. I, I did a, um, an aerospace uh, recruitment video for our movement membership uh, that will be coming on uh, to our movement site, I guess, uh, this week. And um, the, one of the things I talked about was this corridor. You know, everybody assumed uh, years ago that the corridor was still primarily in the Pacific Northwest, but there's a massive corridor of aerospace industry clustered from Wright Pat down through the 75 corridor uh, into Cincinnati, into Northern Kentucky, uh, all through Kentucky, really. Uh, it gets spottier. It's not as clustered as it is uh, in your region up to Wright Pat, but then it jumps. It jumps into North and South Carolina. And so, um, you know, that corridor has certainly grown extensively. Uh, and, and it's interesting to me, you know, a lot of people don't even know Wright Pat's there and, and, you know, the amount of defense that occurs around that uh, uh, facility. But um, that growth that's occurring for you all, I, and you mentioned additive materials. Remember in 2019, the last time I was at the air show uh, prior to COVID hitting uh, and then me changing positions here, uh, jumping to next move group. I went to GE's um, sort of their overview of, of what GE Aviation is working on and focused on. And additive materials manufacturing was a big talking point for them. And they discussed how the blades, uh, even within their engines, uh, those components, uh, they were working at that time on making those out of additive materials. Is that something I assume they've had three years now, they've been working on it. I don't know if that's something that they're still working on in development or if it's something they're rolling out. Yeah, I think additive is still such an important um, component of GE. But as you know, GE is also going through major, you know, change. They they announced back in November the split into three, you know, investment grade mm -hmm. companies. Right, they're going to split yep. out the um, the healthcare and then the the power sides, and that leaves aviation. So they're strategically uh, hyper focused on the future of of flight. They're also talking a lot about that part, a big part of that. And one of the key things also from Farnborough I wanted to mention is the sustainable aviation fuels and how important that was at the show. It was everywhere. Yeah, and I so saw, there, of course, electric was big, but I saw something about hydrogen being a part of yeah, that. Yeah, so I think, I think um, whether it's, you know, uh, you know, all kinds of different propulsion technologies are being, um, are being you know, R&D is underway. And I think one of the interesting ones 
you know, as you know, I think you know, GE has a joint venture with um, with Safran. It's called the essentially it's the um, the CFM engine, and um, we do that here locally. Uh, and that that joint that joint engine platform is what's driven a lot of new uh, technologies. And one of the things that they had on display was the an open fan concept that they're they're demonstrating on an a380 yep i saw a video on that a380 that open fan. And a lot of a lot of that open fan technology is about their sort of the cfm rise program which is going to be this this new generation of of aircraft engine that's really focused on lowering emissions and it's really getting around this concept of sustainable aviation fuels it's a big big trend in the in the aerospace industry and i think we're going to continue to see a lot of of headlines around this and we're going to see a lot of r&d that takes place in this space you know that's the other thing that I, I talk about a lot you know if you know we're doing a strategic plan for a community who is looking at trying to attract the aerospace and aviation sectors um is the r&d side of it um yeah. I, I think that's a really critical component that um, communities need to understand it really depends on what you're going after you know but if, if you have a, a strong ability to attract the r&d side of it especially in the vtol and evtol sectors and it's really you should probably just use eVTOL uh, as the nomenclature now because VTOL from a gas engine standpoint started going away in 2017-18 anyways but with the focus on electrification and sustainable fuels uh, you know the vertical takeoff um, vehicles are as far as I know I don't know anybody who's developing any gas engines on those anymore it's all electric as far as I can tell exactly and I you know so Another big takeaway from Farnborough were that, you know, I, I in my notes here, I said eVTOL was everywhere. Hmm. There was demonstrations of these new, these new, um, you know, these new, I don't know what you want to call them. They're not really aircraft, but I guess they are aircraft. These new eVTOLs that are, they're taking, that are, they're a huge opportunity for the future in terms of electrical engines, but also in terms of how we might use unmanned or manned uh, aircraft systems. Um, and one of the reasons that we also are at Farnborough is we there are significant investments um, through something called Fly Ohio, the Ohio Unmanned Aircraft Systems Center (UAS) in a partnership with NASA and, and Drive Ohio. There's a lot around um, advanced air mobility work that's taking place here. Um, there's a lot with NASA's Advanced Air Mobility National Campaign that they're focused on. So we've got some some assets where we're doing some. So Springfield Airport, for example, is um, one of the only places where you actually do this live testing of some of these types of platforms. So we've been actively working on the R&D side of that testing, certification, commercialization of these UAS systems in, in, in the Ohio and, and Cincinnati region. Um, and, you know, seeing so many of these opportunities at Farmbo was, was another big reason why we're there. And we, we, we actively focused on trying to have these conversations to kind of continue to drive those types of investments and those types of R&D projects in, in our region to continue to try to grow that, that sector. Now, did you get to see any of the flight demonstrations of any of the eVTOLs while you were there? I didn't see any of the eVTOLs. A lot of them were inside, as you know, you know, you've been to the farm, you've been to these shows, yeah. you know, they're, they're kind of in the buildings and we were there in a massive heat wave. Oh yeah, it, it's it's as it was bad as any air show I've ever been to. It was was so it as bad as 2017? Were you there in 17 it, when it was so bad? Yeah, I don't know if it was bad. I was not there. I heard that, that's legendary. That was in Paris, right? Yeah, yeah. So this one was really it hit 104 at 
the Farm Bureau Air Show. I mean, it, we were in Hall One, which was probably the best air conditioned, but it was it was so just it was just stiflingly hot. So it made well, for interesting a- meetings because everybody's sweating. You know, we went through multiple suits in that week. Yeah, well, that was the U.S. Pavilion was Hall One, I assume. Yeah, well, actually, the U.S. Pavilion was actually in two. Oh, um, we've we've been strategically placing ourselves at different locations, trying to figure out where the best opportunity is. Yeah, um, but there, you know, there were other major states there, as you well aware. I mean, Alabama had a big presence. Um, you know, Mississippi was there, South Carolina was there. A lot of the big players that we're used to seeing was there. Um, yeah, they always. I assume Lee Lawson was probably there. You know, he's yeah. He's always there for, with Alabama, Mississippi, Kansas. Uh, Mississippi usually has a beautiful booth there. Kansas uh, has a good booth always. Um, you know, I, I don't, Ohio always has a great booth uh, at the show. Um, you know, Kentucky, I don't know if they're still, you know, they, they started into it right before COVID hit. And then I, I would imagine they probably didn't go this year uh, to it. But, uh, you know, it, the, the state booths, I, I tried to explain to everyone how large they are. <laughs> Uh, with the amount of meetings that are occurring with, within the show. And it's true. You don't really get to see the flight demonstrations if you're there on business. You know, you, you, you happen to catch one out of the corner of your eye and maybe as you're walking from a hall meeting to a chalet meeting. Uh, yep. and, and sometimes when you get to a chalet meeting, they'll say, hey, let's take a second, go out here and watch this right quick out on the deck before uh, we sit down and talk. <laughs> so uh, that's yeah, they, they the had- only glimpse you get. <laughs> They had some really nice displays of the triple seven, as you, you'd reference, and the seven thirty seven max. And I think you referenced the Delta order. I think there was the three seven max ten is what they made a lot of those orders. They had yep. some really nice demonstrations of that. They, they, I tell you the thing. One of the other big takeaways was that um, defense is back, as as I referenced it, and in a big way, a lot of U.S. Um, military products were being sold overseas. With I think the one that really got catches the headline is the F thirty five. Mm-hmm. And he had the F thirty five on display there, and it 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 did some some shows, and that's a that's an incredible airplane. So we're seeing a lot in the defense industry as well, and so we talk a lot about aerospace, and we talk a lot about you know in our case you know aviation, especially engine aviation is a big part of our community, but so is defense. You know, GE plays a big role in that defense contracts, but a lot of our component manufacturers do as well, and that's the area that I think has done exceedingly well through the pandemic is on the defense side. You know, one of the things that I always found coolest uh, about the aerospace industry was the defense R and D side and working with some of those companies. And then, you know, it's not a lot of jobs uh, when they're doing the R and D, maybe they're, they're getting, uh, you know, getting awarded a contract from the defense uh, sector uh, to produce uh, a new vehicle or some autonomous thing that they're going to utilize. And, but that to me was always the neatest thing was to see those technologies and and what all they're trying to make sure that, you know, the country's prepared for just in case something might happen and this or that. And, you know, then, you know, with safety of soldiers on the battlefield and how to uh, assist them autonomously. Um, you know, I, I got a full demonstration of one. Uh, I was visiting with a company out in California one time and the technology they were trying to utilize uh, to not put uh, helicopter pilots in harm's way and have autonomous vertical takeoff vehicles that can land, drive on the ground, have an autonomous vehicle that comes out of the back of it that goes and picks up a wounded soldier and brings them into the thing and then drives to a safe point to take off. I mean, that kind of technology and working through those problems and issues to me is one of the coolest parts of going to these shows and meeting with these companies where they are. And we'll be right back.
Hello, everybody. And in this week's Executive Search Spotlight, we are headed to Port Arthur, Texas. This is the Economic Development Corporation of Port Arthur, and they are looking for a new executive director. Salary range is going to be 120 to 160,000 based on experience. Remember, no income tax in Texas. Uh, we're going to take applications all the way up through August 5th. And for those of you all who do not really know where Port Arthur is located, it is right on the Gulf, East Texas, right on the Louisiana-Texas state line. So you're about two hours from Lafayette, probably about an hour and a half from Houston and sitting right on the Gulf. Beautiful, beautiful area. So if you'd like some more information, reach out to Brittany McCoy or visit our website, thenextmovegroup.com backslash Port Arthur for more information. Did you see anything that kind of just blew your mind this year that you're like, okay, wow, I didn't even think that was a thing yet? Well, I mean, I think one of the coolest things I did, and this, I don't know if it blew my mind, but they had a, they had the F-35 and it was really a, a kind of a model F-35, right? It wasn't the, the real plane, but you could go and sit in this thing, right? And you got a chance to actually be in the cockpit of F-35. And that was, um, it was very uh, eye-opening about the type of power that this, this pilot has. But it, and as we were getting ready to kind of uh, go up onto the, into the pilot seat, we they had security around the around the plane, and the plane does not have the actual paint that goes on the plane, right? You know, this is a this is a very advanced aircraft that avoids detection and has all these kind of you know very advanced technologies, but they have security around this because people actually try to chip some of the paint off when they're when they're walking around this thing. So that from an R and D perspective, all right? Everybody, everybody's <laughs> trying to get an edge up, right? So. Um, that I think that was interesting to me. Uh, the, I guess the only other takeaway, and I, I don't know if it was surprising, but I think, I mean, I guess it is a little bit surprising of uh, the breadth and depth of the supply chain disruption um, across all industries, but specifically in aerospace, we're, we continue to see that as a major factor. And a lot of it still has to do with the electronic side. I mean, that we've I think we somewhat underestimate how significant the supply chain disruption, especially on some of the electronic side of, of these industries that we focus on. And I think that was a big key takeaway from Farm Free as well, is that the every interview talked about supply chain disruption, how, how impactful it is to their ongoing ability to meet, you know, their goals and the sales objectives. So I think that one is one that I continue to monitor and I wonder how that's gonna get reshaped as we go through the next few years. I'm actually very bullish on FDI investment. Um, one of the things that yeah, I'm, one of the things I'm talking a lot to my boss about and our community about is I think we need to up our investment on FDI because I think that the time of the next five years is gonna be, is gonna be significant in terms of how these supply chain disrupt, these supply chains get rebuilt and I think the United States has a real, real opportunity to win a lot of this new work. Yeah, four of our current site selection projects are FDI. Um, mm -hmm. And then you look at what we have in the pipeline uh, for ones that will be coming on, I would say, and probably 50 to 60% of them are FDI as well. So yeah. the I've been saying this for a while now. You know, of course, when I was on the local regional level, uh, I felt FDI was was probably the best attraction opportunity uh, for where I was located, uh, and that that the new investments, new locations, new facility locations were going to be 
uh, heavily FDI. But now that COVID has occurred, supply chain issues have occurred. Then you have, you know, border issues in Canada, uh, you know, because, you know, you, you think about your, your average Canadian manufacturing company, a large portion of their business is typically in the United States. It could be up to 60 to 70% of their business is in the U.S. And so, you know, their growth model is in the U.S. just from a popular sheer population standpoint, it is. And so you, you even think about Canada, that's still FDI. And with the border issues that they've had and have occurred, you know, I think that there's a lot of opportunity uh, in the great white north for, for companies and com or for communities and economic developers to go after. And, and on the supply chain side too, you know, you, you mentioned <clears throat> some of the issues there and what you're monitoring when I was still on the local and regional level during COVID and following up with, you know, the aerospace companies that we had been working with, you know, they were projecting possibly out to 2024 until you saw a full turnaround of the aerospace industry uh, because they were already seeing what was going to occur in the supply chain sector. And of course, then nobody was flying anywhere for a year, year and a half. So, um, you know, there's all kinds of issues that, of course, sort of stunted some of the growth that you, we were seeing leading up to COVID in the aerospace sector. Yeah, I could agree more. And I think, um, you know, I think we, we, we are seeing across at least the portfolio of our projects this year, we're seeing, we're, we've, we've done well, you know, we've, we've won over 12 projects already over a thousand jobs, but we're seeing, we're seeing projects start to get somewhat delayed in terms of that decision-making. I don't know if you're seeing the same thing, but we're seeing an uptick in these FDI opportunities. We have a very robust pipeline of opportunity. Um, and so we're bullish on the year, but we, we also seriously, we know that there are some headwinds, um, whether it's inflation or the fear of a recession, you know, it's also, you know, a midterm election year, those things always impact our work. So uh, we, we remain bullish, but we, we think that there are some headwinds that we're facing as we go through this uh, next six months of the year. Yeah, I agree. So I saw that you were uh, also in Dublin right before you went over to Farnborough. Did yeah. You, did you get to do any uh, whiskey distillery tours or anything like that while you're over there? I didn't do whiskey distillery, but I did hit the dub. I did hit um, Guinness, um, which was, you know, that was an interesting tour. We actually, we actually, this was, this was almost three years in the making. We were going to do this trip um, in 2020 and we started talking about it all the way back in 2019. So I think you're aware of, of the industrial real estate group, SILR. Oh yeah, uh, they they have their big international meeting and it occurred in Dublin. So we we actually sponsored that event, um, and we had a chance to to promote our region a little bit on that Friday morning. So we went over and had a chance to um, participate with SIOR. We put on a fantastic conference there. Um, a lot of interesting um, conversations around what we're seeing in in the real estate markets. Um, and they got to, to really get a chance to kind of get a chance to feel and see Dublin, which was really, really nice. Had a fantastic dinner in one of the cathedrals um, and had a real opportunity to, to kind of look around. Um, so we enjoyed our time. Um, you know, was, when we, we, try to, we try to maximize our, our jump across the pond as much as possible, oftentimes doing multi-country trips. It just, as you know, those things get, uh, after, after about 10, 12 days um, internationally, and constant meetings, it uh, can be exhausting as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The last one I did, uh, we did the same thing and uh, tried to capitalize on multi-country visits and went to Germany uh, to Stuttgart um, yep. before heading back to Paris for the air show. And 
especially that first flight, because you fly, you know, we flew into Paris, jumped on another plane, flew from there into Germany, and it was the most grueling journey ever. And that, you know, you get there and it's still daylight. So you have to just try to stay up and, yep. and, and get rid of that jet lag as quickly as possible. But you just feel like you're in a haze in a dream. So you have to schedule your time appropriately. Otherwise, you can't go to a meeting straight off that flight because you're going to be talking nonsense probably. Half the time. Yeah. And, you know, and I would just tell you for anybody who's traveling internationally, um, the, the European airports are having some challenges. Um, you know, they are, you give yourself plenty of time. I think I gave myself, I think I, I, say, I, think I left my hotel four hours early to go through Heathrow. And I, I needed almost all of that time to get through it. Yeah, I've so, seen some uh, videos online of some of the queues. That, not, we call them lines, but they call them queues. They, but the lines are just massive. Yeah. And it's it's from staffing it, more than anything, isn't it? They don't just don't have. Yeah, staff. I think it's a I think it's a staffing issue. Um, they're they're also going through a lot of uh, labor issues over there. There was a there was a threat of a refueling strike. I thought I was going to get stuck, but that actually did not happen. So, I think they I think the airports, you know, just like a lot of companies uh, and a lot of few folks did during COVID, they had the right size. And I think a lot of folks that that left have found alternative jobs and they're not coming back and so there's some labor shortages as a result i think everybody's sort of trying to figure out how they they restaff appropriately yeah across are you all, all these industries are you all already gearing up for uh paris next year getting ready for it yeah yeah we'll be there um we go we go every single year we kind of go back and forth we're also doing a, one of the other ones other shows we do on the advanced manufacturing side is there's a big show in chicago called imts and as you know, the, the next year is uh, Hanover Fair. Well, those kind of kind of jump back and forth. And so we try to do the large manufacturing shows um, in those spaces as well. So um, Hanover is in Germany and then IMTS is in Chicago. And they kind of work key. Well, one of the pieces of advice I gave folks in the, uh, the training video that we, we produced on aerospace recruitment was that if you're going to do one of these large shows, uh, I said, you know, this right now as this video is being recorded, it's it's uh, farm boroughs next week. And so uh, if you're going to be planning to go to Paris, you need to start planning now uh, yes. for, and, and gave tips on planning and, and travel and accommodations and getting back and forth and all these things that, you know, you may not you might not think of as something you really need to focus on uh, for your first time, especially going uh, overseas for one of these large shows because they are massive. There's a lot of people there. And so. Look, I, I appreciate you being on the podcast today. I uh, appreciate you giving insight into the into the air shows and uh, what's going on there in southeast Ohio and uh, really south south uh, or southwest Ohio, southeast Indiana and northern Kentucky, the the three states that you cover. And uh, we'd love to have you back sometime. I'd like to get up there. I was actually up in Cincinnati uh, last week. I came up for the uh, the Poison concert, the Poison Def Leppard. <laughs> Um, Motley Crew deal there at uh, Great American Ballpark. It was a blast, by the way. So yeah, um, no doubt. Great. Uh, I always like to give my guests the last word. If there's anything else you know you'd like to say, uh, let our audience know. Feel free. Well, I think Chuck, I really just really appreciate the opportunity to to chat with you about what's going on here in our region. You know, we're very proud of our region here. We we didn't get a chance to talk a lot about a lot of the other assets, such as our airport and our great universities and our great people here. So. We just, you know, anybody who has questions, um, anybody who wants to talk economic development, anybody who comes into Cincinnati, feel free to reach out to me. I'm always available to assist in all those endeavors. And I appreciate uh, the work you do, Chuck, and um, look forward to working together as we continue. 
Awesome. Well, thanks again for being on the show, Wade. We'll see you all next time on the next Move Group We Are Jobs podcast.